And uh, so today, we're, we're turning a corner as we come to what ends up being basically a concluding section of the book of Colossians, and it concludes all of the affirmations that you are in Christ. After having extolled the greatness of Christ in astounding ways, and then affirmed and commended you as being in Christ, now Paul begins to set the table for what's called the hortatory, or the exhortations, or the charge that comes of how it is that we are to live this godly life, given the fact that we are in Christ. Now, as we get ready to read this section, we're going to be, as you can see on there, in Colossians 2, uh, verse, verse 16. The title of my sermon today is Bound for Glory. It's epic, but so is the letter. Now, in reading this, it reminded me of a time when I was heading up the eastern shore, and I was, I go that way when I go home to the great state of New Jersey, New Jersey thank you, and, and as I'm heading towards the Garden State, uh, up the eastern shore, I am not so familiar with all of the landmarks so much, but I, I needed to get some gas, and I wanted to go to Wawa for a variety of reasons, and, and, and I see a Wawa off to the left coming up. And I think, well, great, I'm, I'm, I'm getting ahead to this. Even though I had plugged in earlier to my GPS, the Wawa, and it told me to go beyond that intersection. And I thought, nah, GPS, GP schmesh, right? I, I got this. I have an internal gyroscope gifted by God as a man who need not take directions from some stupid little computer screen. What is that? Right? And so I, I, I think, you know what? Bag that. Go up there. What? What? This thing's jacked. But anyway, so so I think I'm going to go straight towards it. I'm going to go straight towards it. I'm going to make a left. Uh, I'll end up right at the Wawa. This will be easy peasy, wonderful. And and I do. Unfortunately, maybe you, you've had this happen before. But all along the front of the highway there, as I try to go past this Wawa, I cannot get in. There's there, there's no entryway. I got to come very close to the Wawa. I can almost touch the Wawa, but there's no getting into the Wawa. And then I have to come back around again. And, and this time when I come to the light, I don't actually this time say to myself, you know what, I don't care what this thing says. I'm going to do it my way. I tried that once, you know, insanity, we know the definition. So, but this time I realized, oh, I have to go all the way up, come around a weird jug handle thing, and then come back in, and there's the entryway off on the side to the back of this Wawa. And there's the little Wawa sign at the curb. I'm like all excited, and I, and I get in. But the, the reason that it reminds me of this is so often in my Christian walk, there are things that I think are the, the path that I should take. And that, you know what? It's such an easy thing. If I just go, I see it. It's right there before my eyes. I, got, I know that if I just go there right this way, that that's what's going to get me there. You know what it does? It gets me close to there. I can almost touch there. I can feel as if I've been there. But then all of a sudden, away I go again only to have to finally learn my lesson. And in, in my spiritual life, unfortunately, I go round and round and round more than a few times until finally Jesus is able to kind of smack me up the head with that loving way of his and, and help me to go around the long way to realize what is really the true path to get to him. Now, all of that will make sense prayerfully in a moment. Let's go ahead and read together in Colossians 2. There the Bible says, starting in verse 16, Therefore, do not let anyone judge you 
by what you eat or drink, or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. So it does seem, as we've been talking about throughout, this is a, a, a city, Colossae, pretty heavily populated with a Jewish population, but a bit different from maybe the population in the nearby region of Galatia, which is really just on the side door of, of Colossae, different in that I think the Jewish population in Galatia held on to Judaism with orthodoxy. Here, I think there's some sort of a syncretism, is what they call it, a blending between the philosophies of their, of their area as well as the, the Jewish thought that, that goes into this. So anyway, but he, Paul is worried because the, uh, the, the group there in Colossae, the Church of the Colossians, might be suspect to this encroaching heresy that, that would ask them to do these things. Paul then says these are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. I love that analogy too, by the way. I mean, think about the difference between, you know, here's my, my, my dear, lovely wife, and, you know, right next to her, I see her shadow. You know, it's an impressive shadow. She casts a nice shadow. But what if that's all I had? Just me and my shadow. If, if that were all there was, I think that would be rather dis dissatisfying. But, but it's not, I have the reality. I have kind of 3D Debbie, and praise God that that is my life. But that's what we have in Christ, and all that the, the Old Covenant could have had was merely a shadow of Jesus. And now Paul said, but now you have Jesus, 3D Jesus. Why would you ever want just merely the shadow of that? Do not let anyone who delights in false humility, the worship of angels, disqualify you. Earlier, Paul had said, God has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints. So why let any false humility, any of this worship of angels disqualify you? Such a person also goes into great detail about what they have seen. They're puffed up with idle notions. I like the word puffed up in the Greek. It's uh, anomatopoeia. It's the word phusio. Fusio, right? Just, just sounds like puffed up, doesn't it? It doesn't work with this microphone, by the way. So in case you're ever tempted to use a Greek word that begins with a, a, a phi, well, you now will learn a lesson from me. Amen. That's free. <laughs> they have lost connection with the head from whom the whole body, supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows as God causes it to grow. So safety in the body. Since now, now here's what's interesting is look at verse 20 and then look at verse 1 of chapter 3, and you'll see kind of two parallel statements. The one here begins with, since you died with Christ, and then the next section, next paragraph begins, since you've been raised with Christ. Since you've died with Christ, now we got some stuff. Since you've been raised with Christ, and we've got some stuff. So well, keep that in mind as we read, because they go together. Since you died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of this world, and that might be the philosophy that Paul was talking about that had encroached into the corruption and the pollution of the Judaism that was now trying to pollute the Christianity. Why, as though you still belong to the world, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These rules, which have to do with things that are all destined to perish with use, are based on merely human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom 
with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. Now, before I get to this next section that I just mentioned to you, I want to talk about my first point. And my first point is fleshly frustration. And that's the frustration that I was feeling every time I'd get near that wah-wah, only to have to flip back around and find the right way to get there. That there is an approach that I think that we all take in life that would have been very appealing to those in Colossae. In Colossae, there were, from what we know, there's not a lot of great archaeological evidence on this yet, but what we know that there was a lot of kind of Greek philosophies and, and Greek worship of the kind of the typical pantheon of Greek gods. But wherever that does occur, you find a whole lot of debaucherous mess. Real stinking mess. I mean, the gods themselves were subject to all sorts of sins. They were capricious, they were lusty, they were envious, they were gluttonous, they were jealous. All, all of these things are kind of creates the, the palace intrigue of the, of the court of the gods. Uh, soap opera at its worst played out among those that these people are worshiping. And sadly, if that's what you worship, the danger of idolatry when you worship something like that, well, then you become twisted and tortured and distorted by that very thing that begins to give you identity and gives you esteem in your life. That's the danger of anything, by the way, if it becomes an ultimate thing rather than Jesus. Now, you have a, a mess of, of debaucherous behavior that probably attended most of the civil societal activities of Colossae. And for anything that would come in there and be able to bring order and rigor and discipline would have been appreciated by a great number of people in the population. Wherever something comes in that is, is quite rigorous, there's always going to be a lot of people attracted to that. Because at some point, you get sick and tired of having a strawberry sundae for every single meal of your day. At some point, you want to have some discipline in your life. And sure, immediate gratification, all of that feels as though it might be fun for a moment, but if that's all there is, and somebody imposes some sort of worship, well then bring on P90X, because I, I think that's going to be more beneficial to what it is that I've been experiencing. That's the milieu, that's the, the culture of Colossae, and Paul recognizes that Christianity does have more than enough power. Christ is more than enough to be able to take you out of this self-indulgent junk of a life that attends to this area. But it's probably easier just to apply the direct asceticism, harsh treatment of the body, just say no, just say no, just say no is not enough. And intense rigor will not be enough. I don't care how harshly you deny yourself, flog yourself all you want for every indiscretion and transgression that you have, that in the end will not restrain your sensual indulgence. And so this becomes a frightening, frightening prospect. But it's easier to do that. It's easier to recognize I've got this mess in my life. This smoking, this biting of my nails was a big one for me when I was younger. This constant approach of of putting other people down so that I could feel a little bit better self-esteem of myself. 
Whatever it might be, and you think, you know what, I, I just got to clamp down. I, I, I got I to bite my tongue when I think about saying, no matter how funny it is, and even though I'm in seventh grade, and it'll get me laughed, no matter how funny it is, I got to bite my tongue. Just say no. Just don't do it. But what it, what it becomes is really just this revolving door. And you think, you know, I'm, I'm going through, getting there, only to turn around again. And, and think about this in your own life. Maybe there's some classic sin. Maybe it's lust. Maybe it's pornography. Maybe it's bitterness. Maybe it's harshness with your kids or with your spouse. I mean, these are all ones that I know, my goodness, are, are not far to me. When I, was, when I was young, as I mentioned earlier, I was like so ridiculously insecure in seventh grade that I would be very good at ranking or, or uh, mocking other people. It was terrible, but I, but I got a lot of a affirmations for it, and, and as, a, as a result, I would do some more. But you know, after, after I said something, as witty as it was, that put somebody else down in my class, for a second, there was a moment of glee, because, ah, that was clever, and look at the laughs. And, but that lasted for, oh my goodness, what, seven seconds? And then reality set in. Knowing that, hey, no matter how depraved I was, I still was made in the image of God. There was still part of me that realized that was a terrible thing that just happened there. And I remember in the quietness, in the quietness of my soul, I would think, this is, this is not who you want to be. This is polluting your very soul every time you do this. Everything inside of me wanted to stop. And everything inside of me was saying, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Don't go there again. But yet, then when another opportunity presented itself, as earnest as I thought I was, I went through that revolving door again. Some days the revolving door would spin pretty quickly and I'd be back to that same nasty place within an hour. Other times, with greater resolve, maybe the door would spin a bit more slowly and I wouldn't get back there again for a week or maybe two weeks. You know, it got so bad that our entire team of teachers had a conference. And I remember walking into the, 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 the teacher's lounge, which I thought, whoa, I'm going into like the, you know, sanctus sanctorum, the, the inner circle of, of the teachers. And I walk in, I see every one of my teachers. See, and it was an intervention. It was an intervention on me for all of the kind of the, the, the wrecking ball that I was becoming amongst, amongst some of the other fractions to the teachers, but also to the kids in class as well. And I remember even thinking after that, I was like, oh my goodness, I've hit, I've touched bottom. This is the point. You know what? Sadly, even that, even that was not enough because all that did was try to get me to kind of clamp down and just go direct at it. There's the wall. Just say no, just don't do it. Not realizing that ultimately what God has in store for me, and we'll see this in the next point, what God had in store for me was something so much more liberating and powerful and freeing rather than just trying to say, just say no. White knuckling it, see how far that would get me. Associate pain with the negative behavior, hoping to extinguish the behavior. Kind of classic B.F. Skinner behaviorism, associative conditioning. I don't want to bite my nails, so every time I think about biting my nails, I'm going to slap myself on the, on the wrist rather than bite my nails. I don't want to look at, at, at a lustful site on the internet. So anytime that I'm tempted with that, I'll just bang my head against the keyboard. Maybe maybe the associative conditioning and the pain of that will be able to help me to keep away. Snap the rubber back. There's all sorts of things. You know, we even, even spiritualize this idea of trying to associate pain 
to the behavior that we want to extinguish. I, you know, even thought, well, how about if I really think deeply about Jesus on the cross, the flagrum having to rip open his back for my sins again and again. You know, even that, as spiritual as that really sounds, that is really just another form of what's going on in this population that Paul is talking to in Colossians 2. All I'm doing there is trying to find a new associative pain to attach to my negative behavior, hoping that that will do the trick. But maybe you all experience this as well. What happens if that's all that I do is that the revolving door maybe just revolves a bit more slowly, but it's still revolving and it's still heading towards that very same place. I call this the penitentia cycle. The reason why is that when the Bible translated Jesus's liberating words, repent for the kingdom of heaven is upon you. A great notion that we could repent, metanoiete, metanoia is the, the, the noun there. But Jerome in the year 400, for some reason translated Jesus's words and it ended up becoming the most controversial translated word in all of the Bible for all centuries. Jerome decided to translate Jesus's call to have a new mind, meta, metamorphosis of your noia, of your mindset, of your worldview, that you can have poof, amazing new perspective that makes everything clear and so much more liberating. Instead of, of providing that, Jerome instead gave us this word, penitentia. Jesus says, instead of saying metanoia, instead of having this transformation of your entire way of making sense of things, for the kingdom of heaven is upon you, repent, he instead gives us agita penitentia, which is Latin for do penance, do pain. Penitentia is just the word for punishment. That's where we get penitentiary. But that was the only translation of the Bible that anybody had access to from earlier than 400 and, and then really, practically, until just about 1600. It's, it's almost 1300 years of uninterrupted informing of your conscience. The way that you go to have change and liberation from these transgressions and sins is to do ye penance. Do penance. Feel enough pain. Attach enough pain to the behavior that you don't want to have in your life. And perhaps that will get rid of that behavior. Well, here's the, 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 the thing about that. So look on that graph. On the y-axis is sensation. That sensation can be positive or negative. And along the x-axis is time. And so as, as we kind of see, see on this graph, the minute that you sin, because there's temptation always in your life, let's say that temptation is, this, and I, I like using this one, the smell of bacon wafting through your house. Right? And, you know, when uh, Caleb and Lindsay were, were little, they, they loved the smell of bacon. Who doesn't? And if you want to have a, have a good reason not to hold on to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day, bacon is part of the answer, by the way. But, but anyway, going on. So, so bacon has this, like, constant sensation of temptation. Right? Not that bacon's bad, by the way. But, but this constant sensation of temptation of bacon, bacon, right? And so the smell makes its way through the house. And if you want your kids to wake up earlier in the morning than normal, right, just cook bacon at 8.45 and they won't wake up at 10 o'clock. And then suddenly, you know, like on the Flintstones, you know, as the smell washed through, here's Caleb and Lindsay as, as if they're like riding the wave of the wafting smells, making their way like moths to a flame to the griddle where the bacon is sizzling. Now, because the bacon is sizzling, however, 
there's grease that is splattering as I cook the bacon and a little splatter of grease and their little two-year-old hand that starts to reach up, right? And a little baby skin, right? Ah! Oh, think of the pain, all red and you know, boils and, and you know, their little two-year-old, like, what just happened to me? One minute ago, I smelled the most delightful smell of my life. Now I feel the most searing pain of my life. How is life fair? What is going on? However, the associative pain of that grease splatter was enough for them to back away from the grill top. However, you know, a week or two goes by, and it was a Saturday morning ritual back then, before they played sports, when we could actually have Saturday mornings. You know, the, the next Saturday would come, and the next Saturday. But you know what happened over time? The intense memory of that pain begins to fade. Guess what doesn't fade? The smell of the bacon. That's a constant, right? That's the constant temptation. So the minute, the minute that the grease hits you, right? That's what we'll get like the, the sin on this graph. The minute the grease hits you, the associative pain of the grease shoots up to become greater. It's a greater sensation than the smell of bacon. And if the pain of grease is greater than the, the uh, pleasure of bacon smell, well, then you're not going to go near the, uh, the frying pan. However, over time, you see what happens, right? The memory of that, of that, you know, suddenly the red dot is gone, suddenly, but the smell is still there. And then after a while, it dips below. And when that begins to happen, you know, yes, when you have that gap, you're good. But when it starts to dip below, that's when you get into that, that danger zone. That's when just the associative pain is not going to do the trick anymore. And it won't liberate you. And the revolving door is going to come around again because that's when you become vulnerable and that's when you're going to reach up your little cherubic two-year-old hand and get that splat again and go through the cycle again and again. Or that's when you're going to go ahead and go to that pornographic site, look at the stink that's there and come away from it. Ah, the associative pain of, of what it is that you just did, again, shoots you up so that the pain of having indulged in that pornography is greater than the perceived pleasure of looking at the pornography. But over time, the pain fades, the pornographic images continue to be photoshopped, and they continue to, to, to be in allure. They don't change, but the pain does fade. So if that's the approach that anybody is trying to use, Paul says, well then, it is lacking any value in restraining sensual indulgence. You know, in this, in this penitentiary cycle, you know, again and again, you know, you, you go through it, you go through it, feels like the, you know, the, the great revolving door as, you know, you, you, you sin. The pain associated with the sin throws it way beyond the sensation of the temptation. You're good, you hold firm, but in the end, it is going to lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. And you don't get off the merry-go-round. And you, you wonder, oh my goodness, what is wrong with me? I've, I've, I've died with Christ, I've risen with Christ. What is going on? There could be two different things going on here. And you need to be discerning in this, not in and of yourself, but with someone else to help you. Because we are awful at, at being able to judge ourselves and judge others. We judge everyone else on their actions, and we judge ourselves on our intentions. And, and so because of that, you need someone else to be able to help you to be able to just help you to see your actions. John says, show me the fruit. What we need is ask somebody to see whether this repetitive cycle of pornography, of harshness with the kids, of bitterness with your, your mom or your grandfather, the unforgiveness that you have with your spouse, these horrible, chronic sins that are still clinging to you, 
It's going to be for one of two reasons. One is that you may have actually really been buried with Christ and risen to new life. But the way that you're trying to go about your Christianity denies that. And and I'll see how, how we have the deliverance in a minute. But the other reason may be that you may think that you really have been buried with Christ in baptism and risen with him through your faith in the power of God. That you really have been brought to this very place. But in fact, you don't you weren't actually. And you might think, oh, that would be terrible. You know what? Honestly, maybe that's not the worst news. And, and here's why I say that. Because if you really did have all of that happen as prescribed in the Bible, and all you have is a revolving door that is revolving every day or every week or maybe even every month, but, but it is still going back to the same vomit from which you tried to be delivered, if that's what's going on repeatedly, well then maybe the good news is, not that you got it wrong, the good news is, maybe the Holy Spirit has been convicting you and opening your eyes to bring you to this very time and place. Amen. To be able to see the real deliverance that was always meant to be yours. And that all of the power and the blessings of Jesus are still yet to be realized in you. And the emancipation that comes with that is still waiting to actually be yours. Amen. But either way, this is, this is tricky stuff. There are a lot of you that actually may be like solid in Jesus, who have an accused personality, and you're going to think, oh my goodness, I, I need to study the Bible all over again. I think I need to repent, I need to get baptized, I need to have the Holy Spirit. And you know what? And it may just be that you have an accused personality and Satan has a field day with you. So the second part will help you on this as well. For some of us though, what may be the case is that indeed, you may kind of have a, um, a misconception of what it really looks like to come to Christ. And that a clear look at the Bible may actually help you and give you a sweet deliverance that was always meant to be yours. So, moving on to the second point. So the first point was fleshly frustration. It was a fleshly mindset. It was a fleshly approach. Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. But instead, Paul talks about that's not who you are. You have been transferred, or as the King James says, you've been translated into a new life. I love the King James talks about that when it says that you share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light, for he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and translated us into the kingdom of the son he loves, in whom you have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. When you've been translated in this way, you have been risen with Christ to new life. You've been redeemed, you've been ransomed, but that word translated is a good one. The the original word there is similar to, you know, we have metanoia. This is meta, but it has to do not with your mindset, but with your standing. And you're standing literally where you're standing, rather than in darkness now in the kingdom of light of of, of his son, but also in your standing, in, in your stature before the heavenly hosts, before the throne of God. Before your standing was alienated from God, and now your standing is adopted into sonship and daughtership with God. That you have been translated. It, you know, think of the word translated when you think about let's translate our desires into deeds. Right? That's a that's a beautiful idea of translation. And I think the King James does well with this. That if you are in Christ, if indeed this has happened, since you've died with Christ, and now since you've been raised with Christ, you've been translated. And what you've been translated for is not frustration, but for triumph. So let's read on in Colossians 3, starting in verse 1. 
Since then, remember earlier, since you died with Christ? Now it says, since then, you've been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not unearthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Amen. The key to all of this is, okay, so rather than just go about white knuckle, just say no, don't handle, don't taste, don't touch, all of that results in frustration, especially with regards to sensual indulgences. So if that's not the way, then what is the way? Well, Paul tells us. You're looking in the wrong spot. You're looking down. You're looking at the issue. You're looking at yourself. If you really want to know the deliverance, that 100 times out of 100 is your deliverance, rather than just now because you have enough pain and enough gusto right now to be able to keep yourself going because of the gap between the pain and the, the, the temptation sensation, that when, when that when that fades, what's going to always keep you in, in good stead with God, the thing that's going to happen is that you instead look not to yourself, look not below, but look above. But now that sounds so, I don't know, airy-fairy to me, right? Well, okay, so I look up and I what? I, I contemplate the throne of God? Like, is, is that what, what does it for me? Well, it, yes, but not only that. What he's trying to tell us here is that when you contemplate the greatness that is Christ, when you look at this, you will finally get to know the power of the gospel in your life. You will know the power of grace. And oftentimes, so many of us have shared this, we, we say, I don't get grace. I know grace is meant to motivate me. I know grace is meant to break this cycle of frustration. Grace is meant to stop the revolving door from continuing to spin in my life. Grace is meant to you know, take me off of that roller coaster graph of trying to stay righteous before God, only to dip again and again. How is grace supposed to do all of this? Well, here's what Paul says here is that you need to recognize that not only have you died, and so all of those worldly approaches have no value, and you should realize that now, but you also realize that you've been raised. Now, here's the difficult part for us as a culture, as a church. All of these like wonderful statements of commendation of who we are in Christ, to us, sounds like weak sauce needlepoint phrases that your grandmom puts on pillows. Admit to it, right? When I read Colossians, up until this year of my life, when I read Colossians, I would read, and then get me to verse 5. I mean, give me something to do. What is I supposed to do as a, as a man, as a father, as a husband? What is I supposed to do as an employee? Okay, now I got some stuff to work with. That's our culture as a church. And praise God, we are an action-oriented church, Right? What do we get to do in Christ? Charge! Let's go! Let's win the world for Jesus. I don't have time to listen to you kind of quote a psalm. You go ahead and quote that psalm. I'll, I'll see you after you get done with Starbucks out on the mission field when you finally catch up to us doing the real work of Jesus. Right? I mean, that is, that's who I am. I think that's who we've all been. But we also recognize that that is trying to go directly to the Wawa. And, and when we do, we're just going to get near it. We're never, we need to see it. We're going to appreciate it. We're going to be so frustrated. As, why can't I get in there? Because the way in is the way up. Yeah. The way in 
is to stop and recognize who you are in Christ. Your life is hidden in Christ. That has the idea of protection, yes, in many of the Psalms, but it, but it also speaks to the fact that who you are right now is unbelievably glorious. That you, when he appears, you will also appear with him in glory. And the honor that attends to you right now, the wonder and the record of righteousness that is yours is phenomenal. And it would, it would cause the prophets of the Old Testament knees to buckle in contemplation. It's the things that they long to be able to see that only through you are all the great heroes of faith made complete because only in you do they finally see the fullness of the power of the gospel. And this is the gospel. The gospel, the good news, that you are more wretched and pitiful and helpless than you could ever think. But at the same time, more honored and redeemed and loved and lovely and beautiful than you could have ever dared hope. That is who you are. That is your status. That is your translation of status. This is where you stand right now before the heavenly the, the realms. And, and, I, and I remember whether it would be the thought of, of a pornographic image or even something as, as, let's use a simple thing, this is not necessarily a spiritual analogy, but I remember I would bite my nails all the time in college. And, and I remember there was, there was one time where I had a girlfriend in college, and she saw my nails, and, and she you know, said, you know, when you go on job interviews, people are going to see that, and that's going to tell a tale about you. And then, and then she said something else that was really helpful. She goes, and by the way, you have such nice hands, too. It's a shame that you have to, in, in a sense, kind of like desecrate them with the kind of the, the, the gnawing on them that, that's going on there. You know what? From that moment on, I thought about my hands differently. I thought about how nice my hands are. I bought into it. But then, but then I also thought about what, what story my hands will tell other people as well. And, and from that point on, not from don't, just, just, just don't do it, don't bite, don't bite. You know what, bite, bite on something else, bite on your eraser. No, none, none of that helped, but to the recognition of, wait a minute, my, my hands have got it going on. Why would I want to do that to my cuticles? Right? And, and, and you know what, I never, never again. I mean, that's, I don't know, oh, sadly, a mile a year, 30 plus years of, of, not, of not biting my nails. But it doesn't, how about, how about your, your harshness with your wife? Coarse language from your lips, all these things that Paul's going to talk about in a moment. How about any of these issues? You know, in, in every one of these, if you recognize who you are in Jesus, you recognize the honor that is yours, the beauty, the loveliness, how, how you're thought of in the heavenly realms, that you look to where Christ is now seated and to recognize, as Paul has already affirmed, you are seated there with him. You were hidden in him. But now it's difficult because you are hidden and it's not yet revealed. And, and so on faith, you have to really hold on to the, the words that the Bible gives you about who you are. And so it does require faith. It does require trust that this is who you are. And you've got a lot of other 
sources trying to influence you and whisper in your ear as to who you are. But this is just in Colossians. This is who you are. You are qualified to share in the inheritance of the saints in the kingdom of light. You've been translated from the kingdom of darkness and brought into the kingdom of the son he loves. You have redemption. You have full forgiveness of your sins. Once you were alienated, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight. Before God right now, you are holy, without blemish, and you are free from any accusation. Even that accusation, even that perceived blemish, because you're in Christ, you stand before the Father in Him, in His holiness, in His uh, uh, free from blemish and, and free from accusation as well. And not, that's not all. That also in Him, your whole self ruled by the flesh has been circumcised away. You are no longer dominated by the fleshly desires. Sin no longer has the final say in your life. You're no longer under the yoke of sin because you've been baptized in Him and buried with Him in that baptism and you've been raised through your faith. And as a result, even though you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God has made you alive. Christ who is your life, this says in our, in our current passage. Christ has made you alive. What else has he done? Forgiven how much of your sins? All. All our sins. And he has canceled the charge that has stood against you. Wiping it away. Nailing it to the cross. So given all that, don't let any sort of disqualifying false humility, human philosophy, get in there and try to take you away from who you are. And the path to deliverance is not trying to look to yourself, look down, gut it out. The path to deliverance is to look up and be astounded at our Jesus. All that there is in Christ, the beauty of Christ, the loveliness of Christ, the compassion of Christ, the certainty of Christ, the boldness, the wisdom to be able to look at him. Let the scenes of the gospel flash before your eyes. Let the scenes of revelation as he comes in triumph our, our way all be yours and recognize that in all of that, I am in him. And if that is who I am, why would I want to? Look at that filthy, lustful, pornographic image. That's, that's not who I am. That's not what I've been brought to be. Why, why would I want to harbor harshness? Why would I want to cut down that person over there? Am, am I so insecure? Why, why would I ever be insecure? Why would I need to gossip about that other person when I realize who I am in Christ? Why would I be insecure about whether I get the promotion or not at work? I've got something so much greater that affirms me than that. I'll just work for the joy of knowing that work is a selfless activity that serves others. And revel in that, knowing who it is that I really am. That's the power of the gospel. And when we recognize that, recognize that power of the gospel, then it says, then you grow as God causes it to grow. 
that you do this in community though. That when this goes wrong, it's also when we lose connection from the body. And we lose connection from the head, he says. That they have lost connection with the head from whom the whole body, supported and held together by everything, grows as God causes it to grow. Brothers, if we're going to have continued deliverance, we've got to be there, ligaments and sinews, one to another, affirming who we are in Jesus. Affirming that we are hidden in Christ and that we have glory that waits for us. We are bound for glory, every single one of you. Your destiny is glorious. It's the ticker tape, canyon of heroes, parade of parades, just for you. Because that's how astounding you are, and already are, in Christ. We need to remind each other of that again and again. Only by keeping with the ligaments and sinews of the body of Christ, constantly affirming and encouraging one another with the gospel message, will we day after day be able to be bulletproof from all of these little sensual indulgences that would rather come our way and undermine who it is that we're really meant to be in Christ. And so instead of this, this kind of crazy roller coaster of frustration that would attend to us, you sin right away, the associative pain of that sin shoots up. And you think, yes, I've been delivered. Yes, I've been delivered. And emotional people especially feel like, that was my deliverance. No, maybe that was just you associating pain to your sin. And again, as long as there's that gap between the pain and the sensation of the temptation, you're safe. But anybody in the world is safe. There's no great power of the divine that works in that process. Because ultimately, pain fades. Nobody's able to maintain that sort of uh, deep memory of the pain. And ultimately, that pain fades. May take a week, may take two months, but it does happen. And when it does, that's when... You, you are tempted to do what Paul says here. Don't handle, don't taste, don't touch. But of course, what does he say about that? Well, it's going to lack any value. That this lacks any value in restraining sensual indulgence. No value in that whatsoever. What are we to do instead? Well, we are to not try to have a, a, a deeper intensity, but rather to look up, to have a bigger yes to have our minds set on things above. To, to, to have a greater gap that makes the thought of that temptation ridiculous. To, to be able to have in that bigger yes, a transcendent deliverance that is no longer based on fear, but on love. And, and in the gospel, when we get this, when we really understand that, when we get the gospel message, it says... In the same way, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world, just as it has been doing among you. And listen to this, what Paul says here in Colossians 1. Since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace. If this is the day that you hear it and truly understand God's grace, then this will be the path that you take. You will no longer be in that revolving door. You will no longer be on, on that jug handle on the eastern shore trying to get to Wawa. You will no longer be on that treadmill of frustration. But instead, you will recognize through that deliverance, my goodness, who it is that I really am. Who I am in Christ. The gospel message applies to me. How high is high? You don't even know yet. Angels long to look into these things, the, uh, Peter says. Why? Because you never tire of looking at all the different facets of grace. But we've got to change our culture to be able to get to this place. We've got to love the passages 
that talk about because of his great love with which he loved us, God, through his mercy, uh, made us alive even when we were dead in sin. We've got to, to, to look at affirmation after affirmation of who we are because the world is going to try and beat that out of us. Stay connected, ligaments and sinews, one to another. Encourage one another. In your own time with devotion, preach the gospel to yourself. Truly understand the gospel message. Let it wash over you again and again. Let it melt your heart. Let it embolden you. Let it give you a blazing focus, knowing that you are bound for glory. That when Christ is revealed, so will you be. That is your destiny. It is so much greater. It makes any of these temptations, these sensual indulgences, look small and puny and ugly and dark and a vicious lie that they really are of what it is that they could provide you. All they provide you is distortion and darkness and pollution. Who would want that when you begin to see with ever-increasing appreciation the glory of who we are in Christ? And so as a final charge, let me encourage you. Share the power of the gospel this week. Share with someone how the gospel has delivered you. Share with them how, how, how God has delivered you out of fleshly frustration to know real liberation, and to appreciate the real glory that is yours.